Hello, and welcome to another Exponential Investor podcast, hosted by myself, Boaz Shoshan, as Sam Volkering, our dear colleague, is away. Joining me today is Kit Winder. Kit, how are you getting on this week? I'm well, thank you, Baz. Recovering now pretty solidly, so feeling good again, and it's nice to be back looking at the markets. Yeah, I can imagine it's going to be good for you getting back to cricket and everything. Would you say you're 100% yet? Uh, not quite. Cricket is probably going to be one of the, la- the last things we get to. Uh, I, I, I suppose I am gently concerned by the sort of the long COVID threat and about all the stories you hear of people starting to get better, getting back out into the real world and then getting worse again. So I'm taking it easy, um, but we'll see how we go. I must say I'm pretty surprised I've not gotten Wu flu yet uh, as... I mean, considering I was in, we were in central London to begin with, I was in Stockholm uh, during the second lockdown in the UK, and I've only recently discovered that here I am in Dundee, and apparently Dundee is the, uh, is the COVID capital of Europe. This is uh, wow. a, a new claim to fame for Dundee, uh, and yet, you know, I, uh, I still don't seem to have gotten it. So maybe I have and just didn't realize or, or something, but yeah. Even nothing. through the fasting, your immune system held firm. <laughs> yeah, even indeed, even through the beer fast at the beginning of the year in Aberdeen, that uh, I, I still didn't get anything. But we shall, we shall see. It's good to hear that you're uh, you're feeling better, and uh, maybe you've been looking a bit more at the markets this week. Is there anything specific you think uh, our listeners should be looking at this week? Yeah, well, it has been nice actually to sort of start getting my head around things again, and just in time because for the third month running, uh, we've had some pretty well what some people would describe as surprising inflation data. Um, surprising (laughs) incredibly surprising um but now that we're into the third month there there is now an increasing level of chatter around um how much central banks are stimulating their economy so especially in the uk and the us in america for example they're still like throwing incredible amounts of money into the mortgage-backed securities market Um, while house prices are soaring at an incredible pace, uh, pricing people out of the market now. So the Fed is supporting a market that is, you know, pricing out graduates and people on lower wages. And they're also not um, slowing down their asset purchases to support the bond markets. Um, But now for the third month in a row, we've seen, I think in America, it was 5.4%. Inflation figure in the UK was 2.5%. But in both cases, that's a, a level which we haven't seen in quite a long time. And um, yeah, investors are starting to have to consider the reality that these kind of numbers could be here to stay. Yeah. And uh, it's worth noting that the house price inflation isn't something that's actually factored into CPI, um, something that uh, our, uh, our uh, acquaintance and friend Dominic Frisbee pointed out recently. If you looked at the uh, increase in house prices, uh, over just over the past year in the UK, I believe it was quoted between nine and thirteen percent. You know, if you if you factor that into inflation, that was actually part of the CPI formula. You know, central banks would actually have to raise rates uh, a lot more than they a lot more than they have, uh, but of course they don't, as it's very uh, a very politically sensitive subject. Uh, people who own houses vote much more than people who rent, uh, and you know, it's uh, especially in this country where uh, buying property and the property ladder is so, such an important thing. You do wonder where exactly this is all going to lead to. As for the likes of you and I, Kit, I mean, we're not, uh, we're, we weren't blessed enough to be, to be baby boomers. So it does create this ever, ever larger generational divide. Over in the States, it's quite interesting because they, as, you, as you mentioned, they, the Fed do, is very, has been very aggressive with buying mortgage-backed 
mortgage-backed securities over there. And uh, it's not something you see the Bank of England doing much over here. Securitization of mortgages is something that is, um, I, believe it, what it, I believe it is, a, a US uh, financial innovation to begin with. Uh, and of course, the financial crisis of 2008 is something uh, which people... Uh, you know, associate very much with the housing market. Uh, and of course, the housing market was, was a big part of it. I would argue not all of it, but that's a, a different story. However, when you're looking at that and the Fed being really aggressive in buying these mortgage-backed bonds, I remember, I think it was, uh, they've got an enormous portfolio of these, you know, it was hundreds of billions. Yes. And the, uh, they actually tried to sell a bit. I think it was in, I think it was in either late 2018 or early 2019. They, they did these little tests. You know, they'd announce them ahead of time. The Fed would send out, you know, the, these announcements. That, by the way, we're going to try selling, you know, a few billion of these, uh, of these mortgage-backed securities that we found in our books for, for so long. Uh, you know, and it, it was announced ahead of time, you know, they were going to do this. And, uh, you know, that didn't last long at all. I mean, the market, yeah, the, 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 it wasn't long before they tried selling just a little sliver of these things before they started saying, actually, no, 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 we need to, we need to, we need to keep buying these. And it's quite, um, you know, it, it does make you wonder just how, how strong the market would be if they did start aggressively trying to sell these. What would, the, what would that actually do to people's mortgage rates? Um, and at the same time, would there be capacity? So, you know, uh, at what rate, at what yield would investors be willing to buy mortgage bonds if they were being sold, if hundreds of billions of them were, uh, were entering the market uh, over the course of a year? You know, where, where would people's actual mortgage rates go? And what would that then do to property prices, right? If mortgage, mortgage rates were uh, much higher, you know, that, you, know you, would at least, you would at least assume that property prices would get, would get whacked really hard. And some people, would, some people would go against that. They don't think that that would happen. Uh, but it, it's all very artificial. Uh, it's all very political, uh, though not in, an, not in an obvious way. You know, it's never, it's never framed in a political way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, the, this issue, property price inflation of this manner, it doesn't seem to be going away. I mean, what do you think is going to happen with things like that, Kit? Because we've had discussions about millennial and baby boomer divides and things like that. And you generally take a much more measured approach than me. Well, I think one of the interesting things is that in this country, something you hear calls for a lot is affordable housing. And people talk about the housing problem where a lot of people have been priced out. And yet to the central bank, especially in America, with their incredible purchases of these mortgage backed securities, as you describe, what they're doing is propping up a house market. But it seems that, you know, there definitely is some contention there to the central bank. It seems a worth worthwhile thing to do to prop up that market for what you probably describe as financial plumbing reasons. As you say, the mortgage-backed security market over there is much larger than anywhere else. And um, if that came crashing down, the knock-on effects financially um, to sort of portfolios and debt holders and things like that would be very damaging. But to, you know, anyone else, to people like you and I, or just anyone in America looking to buy a house, rising prices is a bad thing because you're being priced out of the market and it's the people who are already worse off, as you say, the people who are renting, the people who don't already own a house um, who get hit by that. So there's a, a sort of quite interesting political divide, I guess, there where the central bank sees it as a very positive thing to prop up a mortgage market, whereas probably a lot of people in, at least in UK politics, would much rather see housing much more affordable for a lot of people. And so it just feels like there's a bit of a point of no return now for the Federal Reserve, as you say, when they try and dip their toe back into the market in the other direction, when they try and sell off some of their portfolio, the reaction is quite swift and quite severe. 
uh, and the risks then as they see them of crashing that mortgage market, which they're now supporting is, is rather high. And I think that sort of point of no return does feel like it's been reached across a number of central bank policies in terms of interest rates, in terms of asset purchases to support the bond markets. And, you know, the chat, as we mentioned earlier on this call was as inflation data surges, as the economy seem to be doing very well under the reopening employment figures are looking beneficial growth, you know, GDP growth estimates for this year are just being ramped up and up and up by analysts. Um, they are sort of struggling because the financial markets still rely on their support. They're sort of like Atlas holding the world on their shoulders in that sense, but the economies no longer do. So organizing that pivot, organizing that turnaround in, in narrative and policy is very hard. And at the moment they seem to be just trying to do it by talking, by sort of changing the way that they speak about what they're doing, but they haven't actually changed their actions yet because I think, um, they may be concerned about what the real world implications of that would be. So I guess the thing that I'm concerned about is just that point of no return that has maybe been reached in terms of uh, how, how much they can start to row back on the policies that have been in place now for so long. Well, to give you an indicator, I think of, uh, you know, just uh, how, how close we are to even the suggestion that we, this could go into reverse. Uh, just uh, earlier this week, it was just a couple of days ago, um, there was uh, the New York, the president of the New York Fed, John Williams, said that uh, the Fed's purchases of mortgage-backed securities are contributing to lower housing costs, which uh, I thought was really quite extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary statement to make. And yet, you know, public statement, this is, the, this is arguably the most important uh, Fed uh, Fed member besides the chair himself, because the New York Fed is so so important to financial markets, he goes out and says, actually, no, 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 <laughs> us printing all this money and ramming it into the property market is actually contributing to lower housing costs, which is quite extraordinary. But uh, you know, amongst uh, amongst other things, Kit, is there anything else that's been uh, taking your uh, taking your attention this week, or is the inflation story and some of the effects of the inflation story more what you're focusing on? That is what I've been focusing on. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Baz, is, um, you know, something that you're very concerned with is the, is the US-China relationship. And I know that the, the Chinese inflation figures have been rather different and their monetary approach has been different as well. Um, what, what exactly is the story there? Because some people are saying that China's sort of been exporting inflation to America and America has been, you know, pushing the monetary buttons much harder and so it is now in a more precarious situation. Do you think that that would be a deliberate ploy that the Chinese would would run in order to destabilize their sort of global opponent? I think, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I think that, um, let's see, there's so many, so many layers to this. I would, I would start, th start with the fact that the CCP is mostly concerned, its primary uh, objective and what keeps it awake at night, um, if you can refer to it as an S, I mean, it is an enormous organization now, but key is maintaining stability at home and maintaining control at home. So inflation at home is much, much more a key figure is, is an enormous, you know, is enormously politically sensitive figure in, in China. So here in the UK and the US, you know, CPI is a very politically sensitive figure. Uh, I've no doubt that there's all manage, manner of, uh, you know, wrangling that goes along with uh, keeping the, the figure either higher or lower, most of the time lower. 
uh, over over here in the developed world. But in China, no, no, no. It, this is mu- it is an order order of magnitude much more important because high inflation leads to political instability, and 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 that's just inflation in general. If you could look at uh, you know food inflation is uh, obviously. Uh, something incredibly sensitive, which was blamed for the Arab Spring, and which now appears to be going on in South Africa uh, in really quite a, quite a major way. That's another crazy news story that we're seeing this week. Uh, but in China, uh, I think they are so concerned with uh, with maintaining the status quo at home that I don't think they would be involved in in such a game where they are trying to stoke inflation abroad uh, deliberately. I think this is, that would more be a consequence of trying to do something at home and it then having second order effects later on. Uh, though, interestingly, uh, another sort of news story this week has been China's uh, uh, sort of un- unscrewing the credit spigots back at home, where they are now stimulating their, uh, their own economy again. And this is something that normally has a, a knock on effect to the developed world. Uh, in a few months' time, or in half a year's time, so maybe in a few months we're going to start seeing, you know, oh, look, German economy is picking up, lots of machine orders from there, and that's going to lead on to a trickle over into other things. I would note uh, also that the oil price, uh, which remains very ele- elevated, we did discuss it in more detail last week. I think that it's maintaining at its position while other commodities are falling back. So the superstars like uh, lumber, which uh, went you know gangbusters uh, during the lockdown, uh, it has since fallen away. A lot of people were, were looking to lumber as evidence that we're now entering a high inflationary era. It doesn't really look quite like that anymore. But oil has you know maintained its stood its ground, and I think key to that is China really consuming a lot of oil, and uh, now China is. Uh, pumping credit growth again, they are uh, you know wanting to expand their economy using more and more debt. I think that is going to uh, I think that's going to it's a yet another factor that will lead to a higher oil price. Uh, and at the same time, higher oil price, of course, is included. Unlike housing, oil prices are included in the CPI uh, calculation or energy prices, at least of which oil is a major factor. So uh, I think higher oil oil prices uh, will do more to stoke inflation over here. But I, do, I don't believe so much that uh, China is attempting to create inflation in other areas. Um, though, yeah, though, though there, are, there, are, there are some interesting angles to that when it comes to the US dollar and trying to get away from the US dollar, uh, things like that. But that's, I think, a slightly different question. So it's more like we want to avoid inflation at home. So we're going to cut ourselves off from inflation abroad rather than we want to destabilize uh, our major opponent. We're going to create uh, inflation abroad. I did wonder a while back, I think it's now in America's best interest, actually, to create inflation in China. To, to, un, un, to Well, I mean, I say America's best interest. It's in maybe, uh, you know, uh, the Pentagon's best interest to stoke inflation in China and probably not the average American. Uh, so in, in Washington's grand strategy, I think uh, it energy inflation uh, in China is something that uh, they would maybe want to try and create, as that would create the domestic unrest that would maybe uh, undo the CCP's hold over China. So where previously uh, America ended up cutting all of these uh, very interesting uh, sort of shady deals with the likes of Gulf states um, in order to maintain its energy security, now America does not need that energy security anymore because it is now the world's largest oil producer. So when you're looking at um, you know, how the balance of power has changed, 
you know, Russia was a, was a country which thrives off chaos because higher oil prices just meant larger government revenues. I think to a large degree, America now has that status because it's now such a large oil producer and it doesn't require that energy security anymore. Whereas China has taken on what, you know, what the US used to be, where it's now the largest energy consumer and it doesn't create very much of it itself. So it needs to kind of broker these uh, energy security arrangements with other places. Uh, and as a result, so America can sort of absorb the chaos and benefit off it, whereas for China, higher oil, oil prices and oil instability in general uh, are very bad for its economy. Uh, so I would think maybe America would be trying to create inflation in China rather than the other way around. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, the, the oil story in America changing, um, you know, is one of the dramatic stories of the last decade. And then now as, as it moves as aggressively as it can towards renewables as well. The, the geopolitical ramifications of that are sort of quite interesting, but I think that's probably something we should get into in more detail another time as we've been on for about 15 or 20 minutes now, Boaz. Um, so unless there were any final notes you, you wanted to add on this. Mm, yeah, any final comments that we, we could add? Um, well, actually, yeah, one, one last thing. Let's, uh, let's, let's pull it forward a little bit, Kit. What do you make of what's going on in South Africa? Have you, have you seen much about that? Uh, I've only seen the very first level things to do with the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma. Um, but um, as you say, uh, the situation that we've had over the last two years of a pandemic of global lockdowns followed by soaring food prices was something that actually a colleague of ours, uh, Robert, mentioned as, as a key risk in terms of sort of political instability in developing nations following on from rising food prices. Uh, after a pandemic and obviously you know the gilet jaune was a movement in france when fuel taxes rose when times are tight these smaller or these you know very economically sensitive commodities can have a really big impact um on large swathes of society and you'll see that mostly in in developing nations so i think the stage is set globally not just in south africa but globally for for trouble of this kind south africa is the first and i i I would agree with what, what our colleague Rob suggested to us, which was that it won't be the first uh, and that across maybe South America, across parts of Africa and Asia as well, um, we could see more of this kind of thing. And it is, it is a definite risk when food prices are soaring and, you know, the pandemic is, is causing such devastation and, and sadness across the world. Yes. I think the I want I I've never been to South Africa myself, so I'm no uh, I'm by no means uh, you know not even remotely knowledgeable about the nation or about its political system. But what uh, from what I have seen, when you when you're looking at the rioting, when you're looking at fires, when you're looking at uh, well, well, I mean, there, there's one story which I thought was um, quite interesting, which actually passed me by last year. Uh, was that Aben Barlow, uh, who founded the very innovative uh, and sort of is the, the, the modern example of a mercenary company, uh, which was called Executive Outcomes uh, many decades ago. Uh, he is, Aben Barlow was a South African soldier who then sort of created this, this outfit and they ran lots of private security arrangements for lots of uh, African governments, but they did do a lot of work abroad as well. And uh, it received a huge amount of criticism because they, they you know, I mean, it was a mercenary outfit and they were, um, uh, you know, they were playing pretty fast and loose with, with rules and they were effectively just being private soldiers. Now, Barlow uh, has since re, uh, recommissioned the company. So executive out outcomes now exists once again. 
He's an old guy now, uh, but he's got a lot of know-how. And he actually recreated the company um, very, very recently. And the fact, I think the fact that this South African mercenary is doing this again is not only um, a, uh, a signal of where we are with this second Cold War idea, but it also uh, speaks a lot about uh, political instability uh, across Africa and especially in South Africa. So I think this, um, yeah, it doesn't bode well for the economic stability uh, of, of, <laughs> of uh, you know, the nations which executive outcomes did business in. And uh, I do wonder what this is going to do, interestingly, for uh, some of the things that you look at, Kit, when you're looking at um, these uh, South Africa, which, of course, is the, I think, I believe the world's largest producer of platinum uh, and various other metals, uh, whether or not those supply chains are going to get uh, really wrangled up and messed up uh, as a result of some of the political instability there. I think the, I remember reading a while back that uh, a lot of people were wondering why platinum was not getting adopted again for use in uh, various applications like catalytic converters. And instead they were relying on things like palladium, which you can get from Russia. And one of the, one of the answers given, because it's not abundantly clear why people weren't uh, deciding to use the much cheaper platinum to replace the palladium, is simply because so much of that platinum output was concentrated in South Africa and political instability there could lead to major uh, supply chain shortfalls. So I wonder whether or not that was, uh, that was on the button because these days it, it does seem, seem that way. And I wonder if as a result, that's what's going to pull platinum out of this uh, very dismal market that it's been in uh, for the past decade, really. I wonder if uh, this, uh, this unrest in South Africa is going is to uh, finally pull it up again. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, as you say, my focus in, in the resources sector in Africa would be around cobalt in the Democratic Republic uh, of Congo, which is where most of the cobalt uh, in the world's electric vehicles is mined from. And they've yep. seen huge, uh, well, there have been long running concerns around the use of child labor and around the use of um, working or around the working conditions that are in place there for the mining of cobalt and the sort of classic idea of that electric car you're preening around in not being quite as, uh, you know, wholly ethical as you would think, like, yes, it can run on renewable electricity, but, um, you know, where have the resources come from? That is a, a really significant factor. And I think the focus on supply chains that has increased in the, in the last few years will lead to outcomes like what we're seeing in, as you say, in South Africa. And while obviously some people hope that, uh, the end of the fossil fuel age will see the end of some of the geopolitical strife that has um, you know afflicted the world especially in the Middle East um, and in some of the oil producing nations over the last 70 years there is hope that the move towards renewables and everyone being energy self-sufficient will will bring an end to that but then the resources as as we're discussing right now like palladium rhodium cobalt nickel um, the resources that go into these new clean energy technologies are not widely distributed and there will be supply chain issues around them and there will be geopolitical tensions around these around securing the supply of that so one of joe biden's big things is the onshoring of uh, critical material supply so things like lithium uh, is is booming in canada in terms of lithium mines getting approved um, finding ways to get cobalt and nickel as well um, and copper, which is increasingly being seen as a key metal in the transition. Um, so yeah, just the supply chain issues around those things are definitely crucial. And, and from my perspective, those critical materials for batteries will be something worth watching very closely.
Well, I think that's a, a good subject to end it on. Uh, we could go on for a, a lot, lot more. This is a very deep topic, and I have no doubt it will become more relevant as the 2020s progress. But that's all we do have time for today. Kit, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great time. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak to you as always. Well, there you have it, folks. Sam Volkering should be back all being well next week. But that was this week's EXI podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we shall be back next time.